Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Please consider doing me a favor and pre-ordering my new book uh, from Coach House Books, The National Gallery. Uh, it contains sonnets for Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies in the manner of Rilke, but for a dead iPhone, uh, and other strange missives from yours truly, the poet laureate of hell. So go to thenationalgallery.ca for more information. That's thenationalgallery.ca. Thanks. Today I'm going to talk to you about a special, weird, experimental book project that I did. I kind of just released this book in 2014 originally, uh, and then I recently just, you know, re-released a, a print version of it. It was originally an ebook, and now there's also a print companion to the ebook. Um, they have two different titles for a reason I'll get into a little later. Uh, the ebook is called "This Ebook Is Otherwise Provided to You As Is." And you can find out more about it at jonathanball.com slash this hyphen ebook. Uh, and the book, the print version is this book is otherwise provided to you as is. You can find that at jonathanball.com slash this book. Uh, no hyphen, just jonathanball.com slash this book. Uh, those two books are also available on Amazon if you like, but I've priced them uh, higher on Amazon because... Uh, of a reason I'm going to get into a little bit later. So you better off just get it directly from me. Uh, and also, to um, if you do decide to get you know, the print copy of this book, is otherwise provided you as is. It doesn't say it on the website, uh, but uh, you know, I'm releasing this podcast. Um, and if you, it's kind of a secret bonus that I'll tell you about, is if you buy this book, is otherwise provided to you as is from my website, I'll just give you also a copy of The Politics of Knives. Um, so a uh, secret thing, just if you listen to this podcast, you'll know it. Otherwise, no one's going to buy this book because I'm not advertising it or anything, really. So I'll know if you've, if you've ordered it, I'll know you heard about it here. Um, and I'll send you not only the print version of this book, which is, you know, basically pretty rare at this point. I don't think there's more than three, four people on the planet who actually have a copy of this right now. Uh, but also I'll send you a copy of my last um, uh, poetry book with Coach House Books, uh, The Politics of Nyes, which, you know, uh, is, you know, a uh, really interesting, weird, uh, unusual book that has, um, you know, won some awards and done fairly well. Now, um, I want to talk a bit about this book is otherwise provided to you as is. Uh, one, because I just want to explain the concept and the project a little bit. And I just want to walk kind of through the life cycle of a project. So this is a project that I kind of came up with uh, in, you know, in 2008. Uh, I completed it uh, more or less in 2014. Um, and, you know, recently I, I did a you know, print version of it, but it's, it's not really any different from the 2014 version. I just happened to, you know, do, have a print edition made available. Um, so really it's a 2014 book, but it's, you know, about six years in the making, although of course I wasn't just working on this book for six years. And I kind of just did it as a weird kind of experimental project. Uh, and I'll get into the history of it a little bit, but I wanted to kind of explain a bit about the life cycle of a project, especially a kind of unusual uh, experimental project that I think really does exemplify uh, writing the wrong way. You know, this kind of uncommon or unconventional way of working or writing. 
but also I think just to give you a bit of the logic of some of the decisions that happen in the course of a project and how a project might mutate and change uh, in various ways. Uh, at the same time, uh, something that I would like uh, to do here is answer some questions I've received about the project. Um, if you go to my Patreon, you know, I'm on Patreon uh, at you know, patreon.com slash Jonathan Ball. Uh, and, you know, you can go there, you can become a patron uh, of me and my work. Uh, that helps me do things like uh, publish this podcast. It helps me do weird little, you know, projects like the, this book project. You know, it finally has a print edition because, uh, you know, of the support of my patrons and so on. Uh, but the other thing it does is it gives you sort of access to all sorts of, you know, odd freebies. Uh, so I'll just, you know, I'm going to have a more structured way of doing the Patreon later. But what I do now is I just sort of post exclusive things that you can't really get anywhere else, you know, digital stuff, you know, on the Patreon feed for my patrons. And then every once in a while, I'll just mail you things. So, um, you know, I recently, you know, printed this book and mailed it out to all my patrons. So it's kind of just a surprise uh, that, you know, they didn't realize they were getting. Um, and I didn't explain it at all, really. Like, the book has no explanation as to what it is. Uh, and so, uh, you know, some questions have kind of come into me uh, about it. Um, and uh, I specifically got some questions from Risha, ha Risha Hancocks, uh, a former student and, you know, now one of the patrons on there. Uh, she had a bunch of questions about the book, and I said, you know, uh, I've been meaning to do a podcast about it to kind of, you know, explain this book a little bit. Uh, so I'm going to answer some of her questions in the course of doing that. So I just want to say uh, thanks for the questions, Risha. Uh, I apologize if I'm saying your name wrong. If I remember right, Risha is how you say it. <laughs> but uh, um, I appreciate the questions, and uh, I think they, you know, they're very. You could, I could see in her email that she had taken a lot of, she'd really read the thing, <laughs> you know, which, and I had gone through it uh, with a lot of thought uh, and. But it is a mystifying book, and so there are a number of things she kind of hit on that I was planning to talk about, uh, which I will talk about. And then some of the questions that she had that I didn't really consider, but I think probably if somebody had actually taken a look at this book, they might have a reasonable question about it. So uh, all that said, I'm just going to kind of walk a little bit through the origins of this project. Uh, so back in 2008, I started to get uh, interested in conceptual poetry and conceptual fiction. Uh, and just all sorts of conceptual uh, art, uh, experimental art forms. Um, at the time I was uh, completing my PhD, um, I was just, you know, about to, I was living in Calgary, I was just about to move back to Winnipeg, and I started to get uh, a bunch of emails from spam bots. Uh, so at the time that I'm getting these emails, I want to point out, I'm in a literature PhD program, I'm studying with people like uh, Christian Book, who, you know, this experimental poet who is uh, there at the time. Uh, I'm reading a lot of experimental and conceptual writing. Uh, a book, I can't remember if the book came out then or not, but a book that I had, uh, I believe was out at the time and had in my mind, or certainly I became very interested in shortly after, uh, was this book called uh, Uncreative Writing uh, by Kenneth Goldsmith. So. Uh, again, the book is Uncreative Writing. If you go to writingtherongway.com, I'll link to these things. Um, but uncreative writing and conceptual poetry and conceptual fiction, in a really boiled-down nutshell, uh, is sort of the literary version of conceptual art where 
you know, there's different forms of conceptual art and conceptual writing, but they really boil down to ideas where you're taking text and producing and presenting the text as artworks, anyway, as literature in this case, uh, but you are uh, fundamentally more interested in the idea behind it than in the actual writing. Uh, so Kenneth Goldsmith, uh, when he talks about conceptual writing, uh, would say things like uh, he didn't really think people should read his books. Uh, he just wanted them to kind of consider the idea of the book. And if you just knew what the book was about, you could assess it on those terms. Like, in other words, if you just read the back of the book, basically, you could judge the book. You didn't, you didn't have to read the book. Um, he didn't really understand why anyone would read his work and so on. He claimed to, he had a lot of bombastic claims, like he claimed to have fallen, he would fall asleep while editing his books. He was the most boring writing writer alive and so on. Uh, what I thought was interesting about Goldsmith's work and the other conceptual writers that I was looking at, at least some of their projects, was I felt that the, I understood the ideas behind conceptual writing, the idea of trying to f- emphasize the idea and the concept more than the actual text. Um, but at the same time, I felt that it was doing a bit of a disservice to these texts because if you actually read a lot of these works, like if you actually read some of Goldsmith's work, it's quite interesting. Uh, and the text itself is doing a lot of really interesting things. Um, even though, uh, you know, sometimes the authors themselves would just denigrate the value of the text uh, in order to uh, emphasize the value of the idea behind the text. Uh, and at the same time, I was getting interested in computer uh, machine writing. So texts that had been produced by machines or by software programs uh, and so on. Uh, I was really interested in these two things. In particular, there's a book called uh, The Policeman's Beard is Half Constructed, uh, which is often billed as the first literary text, like literary book by a machine, uh, by a software program, uh, in this case called Ractor. So there's, you know, some things to argue with around that claim. But uh, again, I'll kind of link to more information with that if you're interested in it. But I was reading, you know, the Ractor book I read, uh, or at least was thinking about, you know, a lot of these Goldsmith claims and had, you know, gone and gotten more into conceptual writing and interested in it. I read a book called uh, Reading the Illegible by Craig Dworkin, where it's a book of kind of literary analysis, but all he uh, analyzes is texts that are illegible, so that they cannot be read. You know, uh, texts where you know. The, uh, so I, I don't want to get too far into the kind of theory behind this, but I, you know, I'll, again, I'll link to reading the illegible. It's an interesting, critical book where, again, he's kind of examining the idea behind and the philosophy of and uh, some of the history and how you might read, uh, you know, an illegible text. You know, a book that for whatever reason you don't have. The words are not accessible for reading, even though in other respects it is, a, you know, literature. Uh, and there are words, or maybe, you know, the words have been transformed, or maybe they're just not readable for some reason, or what have you. Or they just don't make sense in that order, uh, or whatnot. Uh, so anyway, around the same time I was getting interested in all this stuff, um, I was uh, getting these spam uh, so I was trying to do some writing like this, you know, just do some of this conceptual writing. I had done a couple of different experiments, you know, and I hadn't really hit on, I had the idea of, sorry, there's a dog in the background whining, <laughs> but the dog's fine. He's just whining because he hears people outside. I'm in a studio right now. I just want to explain the dog for a second before I get back on the track. Uh, I'm in a studio here. 
uh, the Chasing Artwork and GMB Creative uh, Studio, where I'm just kind of you know popping in to do some work every now and again um, uh, with my kind of you know company of sorts, Martian Embassy Media. Uh, but anyway, there's a dog here that Justin slash Chasing Artwork is uh, hosting at the moment. It's a very nice dog, but she likes to whine when people walk by. Uh, so anyway, rather than cut that out, I thought I'll just you know, let you know in case it happens again a couple of times. Otherwise, the dog's usually very quiet. So there's my digression. But I was talking about conceptual writing and how I was trying to write poems like this. So, you know, I was trying to write a lot of work, and I was very dissatisfied at the work I was doing. You know, some of it was good, some of it was not good. Um, now, I started eventually getting interested in not writing so much with conceptual procedures, but mimicking them or you know, kind of using procedures to generate first drafts and then rewriting those. Um, but at this point in time, I was really just interested in doing pure conceptual procedures and generating text, you know, just kind of experimenting with the different procedures and doing different things. Um, and at this time, as if to taunt me, I started to get a lot of spam. And I got this weird class of spam where I would get, you know, there'd be these ads for like penis enlargements or whatever, like the usual spam, right? But it would kind of come nestled inside or or underneath it would be all these weird texts. And they were very much uh, clearly a software program, some sort of spam bot program, taking text from somewhere else on the internet. Uh, so a lot of it was just sort of random words strewn together in various ways, but a lot of it I could recognize as clearly from old novels. Uh, so they were clearly pulling at one point from Project Gutenberg and all these old you know, public domain uh, free e-texts that were just available online uh, from that place and just from other places. Some spam bots were just taking big chunks of text and they were just appending it below it, you know, in some weird combinatorial, like it would just take excerpts from these big texts, just crush a bunch of it together, kind of collage all this text together, and just put it at the end of the email that was advertising whatever the spam advertised. Um, and this is how they would sneak an image past my spam filters, because I'd get this image just advertising like penis pills or something, but then below would be all this text, and it looked like, I guess to my email program, it looked like somebody was sending me a real email with an attachment. Um, so I started just copying and pasting all this material into a file. Uh, and I just, just started doing it. I didn't know what I was doing with it, but I just decided, you know, it's interesting kind of to read, and I just started pasting into a file. Um, and then I would delete the emails. So anyway, I did this for some time, and then I stopped getting the text. Uh, and then I, I decided to, like, just look through the file one day. Uh, and I just was kind of skimming through it. I had, you know, 100-plus pages of this text that had come to my, through my spam filter. It was all, for the most part, it was being pulled from literary novels. I could see that. Uh, some of it I wasn't sure what it was from, but it seemed from like business proposals or other, you know, kind of business writing. Some was just weird, random, but very interesting, odd strings of words. Some was even like broken up in, um, like a poem. Like it would, if you didn't read it, like if you kind of blurred your vision, it would look like a poem the way it was laid out on a page. But then all the words would be like avocado. Uh, aficionado, like it would be these strange, long, like uh, complicated, multi-syllable words, just kind of strewn in no real order. So I'm looking through this big piece of text, and I just started like um, I noticed there were like a few classes 
of text. So one of it was just, there was just proverbs or explanations of proverbs. And one of them was just, again, these weird strings of like multi-syllable words. Another one, it was, um, again, these novel excerpts uh, from, you know, old public domain novels like uh, The Red and the Black by Standhall or, you know, uh, Gone with the Wind, things like that. Uh, And then at the same time, there was... You just see these sort of groups of word, types of language. So I started separating them out. I just kind of separated them into their own files. And I noticed I had like a bunch of this stuff, and I was kind of interested in a lot of it because I'm. It was basically very poetic. Uh, the way that poetry works, just to kind of throw a little bit of, you know, a little bit more kind of theoretical uh, idea your way. The way that poetry works fundamentally is it is a type of defamiliarized language. So that's what literary language is. It's this language that we encounter, uh, but instead of the normal way we encounter language, which is a language that is used to communicate, you know, to convey information, uh, or otherwise, you know, communicate some uh, message uh, to us, in which case the value is clarity, right? You know, getting the message across to another person in a clear fashion. Uh, literary language works a different way. Literary language is takes this kind of communicative language and then starts to distort it. And it distorts it in a way where instead of having one clear meaning, the language now has these doubles or tripled meanings. Uh, so the clarity becomes a bit, starts to become an issue in literary language. You don't necessarily understand everything you're reading. And the more you don't understand it, like the more removed from normal communication it seems uh, to be, the more literary it is potentially. Because the more removed from kind of one single fixed you know, message meaning that the language is, uh, the more that it opens to have these multiple meanings. Um, and the further and further you get away from kind of normal communication, the more... Uh, you know, multivalent the language can be, the more it can mean, and then the more kind of it opens up for what we might call poetic use, you know, for literary use. Uh, so what I was noticing with these um, po- these chunks of text that the machines were sending me uh, was they were kind of operating on this poetic level where they had a kind of weird interest as language objects. Um, they had this poetic sort of tensions that were just kind of developing almost randomly like the machines would say take two sentences from like gone with the wind and just put them beside each other Uh, and those like two sentences maybe didn't make sense beside each other but they would kind of almost make sense Uh, so that you would eventually get like things like this where uh, I'm just going to read you a quick line from uh, gone with the wind chapter two in my book gone with the wind it would say things like um uh, oh no, this is, this is from chapter one, Belshazzar by H. Ryder Haggard. So you have a paragraph here in my version. So this is kind of, this is actually something that I preserved from the Spambot text. So it would say, I am he whose young daughter you wronged and murdered long ago. In this, those good days, women really had a chance. <laughs> you know, so I always, I found like these weird tensions like that. So it's like, I am he whose young daughter you wronged and murdered long ago. In those good days, women, women really had a chance. Um, you know, this weird, like, 
two sentences beside each other that seem to kind of be connected and seem to kind of one negating the other, one having weird comical effect following the other, you know, this really dark kind of, you know, revenge speech, uh, serious line. And then it's kind of like, you know, in those days women really had a chance. After just this discussion of women being murdered and everything, um, it was this really kind of weird set of tensions that would start to appear in a lot of these instances. So I was getting really interested in this because at the same time, like, I'm getting all the stuff the machines are sending to me. I'm literally trying to write poems like this, and I'm failing. Like, I'm not writing work this good as the spam bot is sending me. It was very annoying. Like, every day I would open my email, and it would be, like, a bunch of really interesting conceptual poetry that I was just being sent by spam bots that was literally better than the conceptual writing I was producing myself. And I started to get kind of annoyed and disheartened. Felt like those robots were taunting me and like they were doing it on purpose or something. <laughs> so eventually, though, I just decided, you know what, I'll just take this text and I'll start, I'll use it. You know, I'll, I, I assembled a manuscript, um, a book manuscript, length manuscript that I, was ca- I called the Inbox Project. Uh, and then I think at one point I changed the title to just Inbox, uh, all in caps. And... Uh, I, I put a whole 77-page poetry book manuscript together of this inbox project, um, and I uh, separated it into four sections. Uh, there's a section called Cluster, a section called Someone Struggles, a section called Proverbs, um, and another section called This Ebook is Otherwise Provided to You As Is. And that section um, was the longest section. Uh, it was uh, 35 chapters, or 35 of these um, you know, prose poems. Each one of them was basic. I, I went and like I found out which um, which books were having their text pulled from them, and, and I like like I kind of separated out the texts uh, that were clearly from different books, and I kind of figured out which book they were from. You know, and I put like title the book as a title, the book and the author name as the title of that you know section, and I kind of had these you know. Uh, I ended up with uh, 76 of these uh, little chapters, uh, 76 poems, slash, you know, prose poem, slash chapters. Uh, And I cut it down to 35. So I found the top 35 out of 76, uh, the ones I just thought were the most interesting, and so on. Uh, And then I started going through them, and I started just... uh, recutting it. So what I noticed when I looked closely at the source text, like I found a couple of these examples, and I look at the source text, and I try to kind of figure out, well, where, what are the machines doing? Uh, and what the machines were doing was they were taking like a big novel, um, like say, you know, uh, Gone with the Wind, and they were just pulling out uh, a very small portion of the text. Like they'd pull out, in this whole novel, they might pull out like 30 sentences, let's say. And then it would just kind of, some of the sentences it would pull out more than once. It would like double or triple some of the sentences. And then it would just kind of rearrange them in, uh, I assume, kind of random order. Uh, So, you know, you didn't necessarily have the text flowing how it would. um, And you wouldn't necessarily have, uh, and you would sometimes have these doubledness in the text. Sometimes they'd even pull like these, the the warnings, like warning. You know, this is a Project Gutenberg e-text. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, free to distribute and disseminate and blah, 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 as long as you don't charge people and it's free of all fees. Uh, so I noticed that 
that's what was happening with the text. Um, and the other thing I noticed is that because even though the text kind of didn't make sense anymore, because imagine a novel of 300 some pages and you just take 30 sentences out and rearrange them in random order. Well, it doesn't make sense anymore, but you'd have the same names of characters cropping up again. Uh, if a character talked a certain weird way, like in a lot of these old novels, they have odd accents. So a lot of those character uh, act ways of speaking would be kind of, you know, uh, preserved inside of the like chapter, let's call it, unit. And of course, like they'd have the same sort of style and tone because originally a human author wrote all these uh, same sentences. Uh, so there was a consistency inside of each of these texts. Um, and there was almost this kind of elliptical or uh, narrative. It almost seemed like you didn't really know what the story was, but you could sense there was some sort of story in the background of all this. Uh, like the sentences just kind of, they just connected and they just seemed consistent just enough to sort of suggest this larger world, uh, right? It was going on. And we were just kind of looking at maybe, again, just kind of tiny little random snippets or glimpses of this kind of big expanse of larger world. Um, so I thought they were really interesting. I Again, like I say, I just took these 76 of them and boiled them down to 35. And then I used them as one part of this four-part um, book called Inbox. Uh, and I forget if I sent the book out to people or not, but um, uh, you know, this is a period when I was writing a lot of books, uh, but I wasn't really getting anything accepted for publication. I've done another podcast on this that you can, you can go find. Uh, I think it's uh, episode four. So I think you, if you go to jonathanball.com slash four, I believe uh, you'll get you know the information on all these past rejected failed projects I've gotten. Um, uh, it's four or nine. I, I, it's, it's in the back catalog in any case. But uh, if you search failed projects, uh, Jonathan Ball, you'll definitely, you know, you can search failed projects, Jonathan Ball. I mean, you can find for sure um, more information about these, you know, the books that I've been writing. Um, but Inbox is just one of these books that I wrote, and it just didn't really find a home. It didn't get published. Didn't go anywhere. And usually, I just, you know, that stuff just get, goes in the drawer, right? Um, but it was a project that kind of just kept pulling at me a little bit, and it got to the point where I wasn't really trying to publish the book anymore um, because, you know, as interesting as it was and as much as I liked it, uh, I didn't think it was necessarily the like doing something super different from um, like the other books I'd seen, except for this inbox project section. Um, it's like I liked all the parts of the book, but I didn't feel they hung together necessarily in as much as I wanted them to because they were all very different. Like the machine author doesn't have um, consistency, right? Uh, except within a section. Um, but, but I really, I did like each section separately. Uh, so I kind of splintered it off and I published some of them as chapbooks with different little tiny presses. Uh, but then this ebook section is so long and it was about 40 pages in length uh, as, you know, in like my manuscript. So published, it probably would have been, like if you were to actually publish that book, it would have been like half the book, if not more than half the book. Um, even though I had cut almost more than half of the, like I'd cut like 60% of the material to get it down to that level. So at one point I decided, well, maybe I'll take the, this ebook and I'll just publish it um, as its own manuscript. Like I could put it together as its own manuscript. 
But then when you go through 70, so I pulled back this, you know, um, I pulled it back to 76, like the original 76, and I went through all of it. So that, that 41, or all 76 I went through and I kind of reorganized it. So what, um, and I'll talk more about how I kind of was rewriting and organizing it in a second. Uh, but the point is, I went and I did a whole, like, 76-page manuscript, or 76-section manuscript, but I just felt like it, I felt like it wasn't really an improvement on the 35-section manuscript. Uh, I felt like really all I was doing was I was doubling the length and I was adding back in all the weaker material. Um, so I tried it out, but then I immediately kind of went back to the original, like, here's a chunk of 35. And at that point... Um, I just kind of gave up on it. Like, I published sections of it here and there in journals and stuff. Um, but eventually, you know, I just kind of was like, well, it kind of works as its own little book. It's like a weird little, you know, experimental novella or something. Um, but I don't know. It just, it just didn't seem like anybody would be interested in it. <laughs> like, uh, by that point, I... Like, I wasn't a conceptual poet. I've done, I'd done, like, some conceptual poetry projects. Uh, and then in my book, The Politics of Knives, which I mentioned, if you order this book, I'll, you know, send you that one, too. Uh, one section of The Politics of Knives, which is called uh, That Most Terrible of Dogs, uh, that section began its life as some of the spam text that didn't make its way into, in, to, you know, uh, uh, the inbox project. I had a big, long text where um, it was... It was kind of the first draft of that most terrible of the dogs. What I ended up doing is I rewrote it all entirely. So I kind of just took the spam text and I just rewrote it all um, just by hand. Like I just kind of literally like used it as a first draft and rewrote it in my own sort of style and adding a lot of materials, stripping most of the material away. It completely transformed like pretty much nothing next to nothing of the original text survived into the politics of knives. That's kind of how I got my first draft uh, of that poem. Um, but then the rest of it wasn't really just go, going anywhere. Like I'd done these little chapbooks, like I say. I had the, this ebook uh, was otherwise provided to you as is all together. Um, and I decided to uh, eventually publish it as an ebook. Um, and I thought, well, I'll just publish this ebook, and you know, you know, maybe a couple of people will buy it. Maybe there's a few people I would give it away to, and so on. Um, so I did that. I went through the text again, and I gave it some more editing. Um, so at this point, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I edited the text, because Risha had some questions about, you know, was I editing these texts? How was I editing them, and so on. Um, again, uh, I was doing a basically what I decided to do was I decided to make the text consistent in certain stylistic ways. So one of the things the machines had done is they had taken out all the, I don't know why this happened, by the way, but the machines, when they were sending me texts, they were, took out all the uh, apostrophes and they took out all the quotation marks. Um, so I went and found the original text <laughs> and I put back the quotation marks, but I kept out the apostrophes. Uh, like, it had been stripping away punctuation and stuff, so I decided, well, I will try to preserve the machine text as much as I can, but there's some instances where I just felt like it'd be nice to put the punctuation back in to just make it a bit more readable uh, stylistically. So I put, I decided, well, you know, 
I'll put the, the apostrophes back in, but I don't necessarily need the quotation marks, so I won't put those back in. Uh, so I had like decisions like that. Like I made a few kind of like, what you would call the stylistic decisions um, in terms of like how do I make this machine-generated text a little more, uh, not a lot, but just a little more approachable uh, for readers. So they're not getting hung up on things like the word can't. Is it you know in a contraction of cannot, or is it the word can't, which is actually a word? Um, uh, then I decided to do, again, I had identified how the machines were creating this text. I could see that they were doubling certain things, like pulling the same line twice or three times sometimes. And I could also see they were disordering things. Um, so I thought to myself, well, uh, I'll do that same sort of thing when I edit. So I couldn't, I, my rule was I couldn't rewrite the text, um, you know, uh, and change it. It had to stay the same as in the original. If there was a spelling mistake that the machine introduced, then I corrected the spelling mistake to make it, you know, back to the source text. Because sometimes what the machine would do is it would take two words and it would delete the space between the two words. Um, so I would go back to the source text and I would figure out, okay, well, was there supposed to be space there or, and so on? And I put the space back in. Say, so I would kind of correct machine errors, but I would otherwise keep the text the same. And then I would, but I, would, I felt free to move the text around, uh, like reorder it and kind of add, you know, paragraph breaks and things because those are the sorts of things the machine authors had been doing. Uh, so my goal here wasn't a purely conceptual goal. Like I didn't want to really do pure conceptual writing in the sense of just, you know, here's found text, I'm representing it to you. I, I wanted to kind of, uh, I, I'm really interested in mimicking a conceptual writing style or using like, parts of conceptual writing uh, but then doing you know certain transformations or certain changes that kind of make the text itself work more because like I say I don't buy the conceptual writing uh, hook line and sinker you know I, I, I understand its value in various ways I agree with a number of the concepts uh, that it has uh, to offer but I don't I'm not a devotee or an acolyte, you know, or some sort of disciple of Kenneth Goldsmith or any of this stuff. Um, so I was doing like a limited set of transformations and partly it was an editing experiment for me. Like if I've got like very, you know, three or four things, like very few things I can actually do in an editing process, um, what can I do? Uh, and can I, you know, what am I accomplishing? And then when I edit, I would think a lot about the editing. So again, I would cut and delete things because uh, the machine had to cut and delete most of the novel, really. It had just pulled these certain things. So sometimes I would cut and delete things. I would reorder things uh, uh, sometimes. Uh, and I would sometimes duplicate things, although usually I wouldn't. Uh, usually if there's a duplication in the book, it's because the machine had done that duplication. Um, but I would sometimes, you know, say take... Uh, out the sentence between two duplications so that now I have the two duplications right after each other and it would highlight the repetition or do some other things like that. So I was doing like very, and I would keep certain lines um, that I thought were especially interesting. So uh, on page 71 of my book, uh, the print book, uh, Risha pointed out there's this line uh, w which reads, I'll just read it to you quick, make sure I'm quoting it right. Um, 
I find that I'm not writing very coherently. <laughs> so it's this line that seems self-reflexive. I was really looking for lines like this. I find that I'm not writing very coherently. Like a line that is in the original novel, like in this case, in a book called The Island of Desire by Robert Dean Frisbee. Um, the machine has pulled it out. Uh, and now that the machine has re-situated it inside of this strange, you know, experimental crushing down of the novel to like 20 sentences or something, it takes on a whole different um, meaning. Again, this is what poetic language does, right? You know, it's a different meaning that's not kind of present in the original, but in its new con conceptual context, you know, in this conceptual poem slash, you know, novel, novella, um, we've got this other meaning where it seems to be talking about itself. You know, it's almost like the machine speaking um, as a writer and saying, I don't, you know, I find I'm not writing very, very coherently. So I would take lines like that. I would kind of identify lines that I thought had these double meanings and potentials for kind of new meaning in my text. Um, and I would just kind of like reorder things or delete things or just otherwise restructure the text to highlight that. So in this case, I put it at the end of a paragraph and I made it, you know, a very small paragraph of two uh, sentences only. So it's very, you know, uh, if you're actually reading the text, you know, it kind of draws attention to itself in a certain way. Um, the other line that Risha points out, I'm really glad she noticed this, is the last line of my book is, it's from Stendhal's The Red and the Black. So I specifically put this uh, chapter and this line as the very end of the book. So the very last paragraph is, uh, their true character was only now beginning to outline itself before his eyes. Ah, sir, a novel is a mirror carried along a high road. So that paragraph to me is really important. Again, I specifically moved those two sentences to put them at the end of this uh, chapter and also at the end of the whole book. Um, one, uh, the first sentence here, their true character was only now beginning to outline itself before his eyes. So I liked that particular sentence as a second last one because it's bringing in the idea that you know, you actually made it to the end of this book and you read, you know, the whole 98-page book at this point. Here's a line that seems to kind of speaking about you as a reader and saying almost, you know, mockingly, like, the true character of this book is only now beginning to sort of come into focus. Uh, and then, but now it's over. And so uh, there's sort of this weird sadness or elegiac quality to it, I feel. And then the second part, the very last line, ah, sir, a novel is a mirror carried along a high road. Uh, I love that idea when you kind of take it out of context a little bit because um, it reminds me of a Rorschach test uh, and the, the inkblot test that psychologists used to use. Uh, and the concept of the inkblot test, I'd read a book called The Inkblot Record, uh, with this con great conceptual writing book called The Inkblot Record by Dan Farrell that I highly recommend. And I'll link to it in the show notes here at writingtherongway.com. But um, the inkblot test, uh, the Rorschach test, the concept behind it fundamentally is that you're looking at these kind of meaningless shapes. They're just these sh shapes of, of nothing. Uh, and... If you see anything in it, it's something that your mind has put there. 
it's if you if it means anything to you, it's something that you have inserted that meaning. You've kind of interpreted it in a way that makes it meaningful to you. Um, uh, and I think on one hand, that's what literature, literary interpretation is. Like obviously, in a more normal book, the author has certain things they're trying to say to you, and there's kind of a coded set of messages often. But the other side of it is the reader is reading into it. Uh, the reader's literally looking at these this ink on paper, just like on an inkblot test, and putting in uh, as much, if not more, than the author is intending. Here we've got these machine authors that don't intend anything. Uh, and you've got you know, me as a quote-unquote author who's just sort of this second layer of manipulation uh, who's just trying to get effects. Like, I'm not necessarily trying to say a particular thing so much as, like, just engineer certain reactions in you and particular effects. Uh, and a sort of... Um, I'm kind of almost trying to engineer a text that walks a weird line between being kind of interesting and compelling and frustrating and hard to understand. <laughs> and so I think uh, that ending line is really interesting because the idea of a novel as a mirror, one that's reflecting back uh, you, you know, towards you in, in a manner of speaking. Um, uh, and on the other hand, like this idea that you have, uh, like Stendhal's original context is more like the novel as a mirror along the high road, right? Like that the, the novel is sort of reflecting the world towards you, uh, whereas I'm maybe sort of reframing it a bit uh, as, uh, you know, the novel sort of hold it as an inkblot test that is kind of in front of your face and is reflecting back, uh, you know, kind of this you as a sort of distorted uh, world. Um, so uh, a lot of my editing, like I say, was just sort of re-engineering this found text to kind of do things like this. Uh, engineer these weird little um, like intensify the things I was noticing in the text by kind of eliminating a lot of the stuff around it uh, and then sort of restructuring some of the text in a way that um, highlighted certain meta ideas that I was interested in uh, so that's why I didn't frame the book with any um, uh, explanation like if you actually order a copy of this book and I send it to you it doesn't really have like a back, the back cover is just the front cover re reversed in like a mirror image, uh, it, more or less. Like there's not like an explanation on the back or somewhere else in the book about like how you should read this book or what it is or, and so on. You just kind of open it up and you dive in. Uh, but then the other thing I did is I put some clues in strategic locations. So the chapter, each chapter says like chapter one, then it has like the title of a novel, and then it has the author of the novel as a subtitle of the chapter. So that's giving you a bit of a clue, right, as to what is happening here. And then I preserved certain uh, mistakes the machine made. Uh, so the machine, for example, if they pulled, in, in chapter one, it, the machine pulls from this novel Belshazzar, uh, but it pulled also some of the meta text, like, uh, so the first paragraph of the book is, at that moment, the moon that had been half hidden by a cloud shone out fully. End of this Project Gutenberg of Australia book by Belshazzar by H. Uh, so I, I moved that to the first paragraph of the first chapter, the very opening of the book, because one, I wanted it to begin in medias res, like a good novel should. Uh, so it sort of just throws you into this weird world at that moment. You know, it begins with this kind of transition as if 
bunch of stuff had been happening we don't know about, and then at that moment, this new thing happened. It sets the scene. Um, and then the second sentence of my book is, end of this book, <laughs> you know, end of this Project Gutenberg of Australia book, Belshazzar by H. Um, and it's H because the period, so the machine has made two mistakes. One, it thinks the period for H, Ryder, Haggard, like the period before the, uh, you know, for the initial of the author's name, it thinks the period is a period at the end of a sentence, and it's not. Uh, and I preserve that mistake. And then it also thinks that end of this Project Gutenberg of Australia book, Belshazzar by H, is something that H. Ryder Haggard wrote in his novel, and it's not. Um, so my first two sentences are kind of throwing you in the world of this novel and this weird text that I've developed, and then immediately saying it's over, <laughs> but throwing you out of it, right? Uh, and m- kind of maybe making you notice the mistakes that are happening. And if you're looking really closely, you might be able to just figure out, okay, well, here's what's happening. And then if you haven't figured that out yet, at the end of the first page, the last lines on the first page are to contact Project Guten. It's just a bunch of like gibberish text. Then the second line, you have the title of the book. This book is otherwise provided to you as is. Now that was originally this ebook, just like Australia book was ebook originally. And if you, you buy the ebook version of this book, you'll, it'll say ebook. Um, I'll get in a second to why I made that change specifically, but I just want to point out like the first page I put basically like four or five different clues as to the origins of this text and how this text operates. Um, and I specifically, like I say, I, I reorganized the text to move all that to the first page, just like I reorganized like certain things for the last page. Um, and I don't have as much of this kind of interruption by meta text in the rest of the book. There's a few instances of it, but I put a lot of it in the first chapter. I have a couple instances elsewhere in the book in case you just kind of, once you really forget about it, maybe I bring it back. Um, but otherwise, I'm, I'm really locating these in particular strategic locations. Um, not to make things clear necessarily, but just to give you, let's say, a chance at clarity. <laughs> like it just gives you this chance of like figuring out what I'm doing uh, rather than giving you an explanation. Um, and at the same time, it, and the epigraph of the whole book, it, it kind of does the same sort of thing. So the epigraph of this book is, Welcome to the world of free, plain, vanilla electronic text. Books readable by both humans and by computers since 1971. Um, so again, this kind of Project Gutenberg, you know, meta text that I'm just using uh, at the very start here. Now, like I say, I published Soul as an ebook in 2014, but of course, because it was an ebook only, uh, pretty much, and because it's this weird, weird thing, basically nobody read it. You know, a few people kind of read it and were interested in it and so on, but, uh, you know, fundamentally nobody was read it because, you know, it just wasn't really available. I wasn't really promoting it. I had two other books out that year by, uh, you know, like real print books by, you know, big, bigger presses than like me in my garage kind of thing, right? So, uh, I was promoting those books, you know, and I wasn't really pushing this book in any way. I didn't want to be like, uh, you know, on a book tour or something uh, or in the press talking about these other books of mine that, you know, University of Toronto Press or Insomniac Press is putting out. And then, like, I'm spending all my time talking about this weird little thing that I'm doing as a joke. Uh, not quite a joke, but like, you know, basically a kind of weird experiment, right? So I didn't really talk about it. I just kind of put it out and, you know, a few people noticed it, but not, no one really noticed it. So uh, when Amazon started to really push their publishing program a bit more, um, I started to investigate like the print-on-demand uh, stuff a bit. What I noticed in recent um, 
recent years was that print on demand had started really substantially improving its quality. Uh, and I decided, you know, it would be a fun little print on demand experiment, just, you know, do a print version of this book just for fun. Um, I wouldn't have to be releasing it. You know, it's already been released years ago, but why not just, you know, do a little print on demand thing. That way I can get a few uh, copies of it, at, you know, at a relatively low price point compared to, you know, trying to print you know, like a thousand of them or something ridiculous. Um, so I decided just as an experiment to learn like how print on demand and other things like that work because students were always asking me about it. So I don't know a whole lot about self-publishing compared to uh, traditional publishing. I'm more of a traditional publishing guy in the traditional publishing world. You know, I'm getting more interested in hybrid and self-publishing, but I don't know a whole lot about it. Uh, students are always asking me about it though. So I thought to myself, well, why don't I just do a project uh, that's relatively easy? You know, it's a book I've already done. I've already released it as an ebook. I'll just do a print companion to it. Uh, and then people can, you know, get the print companion as well if they want. And if so, I'll just give them the free ebook with it or something. So uh, I decided to do it. I got somebody, I got SMBCO uh, to, you know, design, to lay it out for me and, you know, do all these things. Went to go publish it on Amazon. <laughs> or at least release on Amazon. Like I said, it all really had been published years ago. Um, and, you know, whatever. So they, the ebook, you know, uh, they have, they come back to me. I get, you know, this email from like Amazon itself, like from people working at Amazon. There's, they say to me, look, um, you can't publish this book because uh, you're pub putting out a print book, but the title is this ebook. And we will not allow you to publish a print book called this ebook because what if people order a print book and get thinking they're going to get an ebook and then they get a print book? You denied. <laughs> so I'm looking at this and I'm like, are you guys serious? And now I'm in contact with Amazon, which you know is notoriously difficult to do. I don't know why they're wasting their time with me, but. I'm going back and forth with Amazon now, this massive conglomerate. And I'm just kind of like, so I'm like, look, guys, one, uh, this book is currently on Amazon as this ebook in an ebook edition. I'm just trying to like add a print option for people. Um, and at the same time, like, guys, like, so. So I've set it up, of course, so that if they do accidentally order a print book thinking they're going to get an ebook, it'll ship them a print book and it also will email them an ebook. So they will get the ebook. It's like one, they will get the ebook even if they accidentally order the print book. Two, I say, the book's title is a warning. <laughs> like the title of the book is, this ebook is otherwise provided to you as is. I'm like, so what's funnier? Then you order an ebook, you get a print book, and the print book is literally, you know, says, look, this is as is. This ebook is as is. You know, if it's print, you know, what can we do? We told you. Um, like, so I like the, the joke of it. Like, part of the joke uh, at that point to me was you order an ebook and you get a print book, and the print book says, sorry, this ebook is faulty. Uh, but, you know, no refunds, <laughs> no guarantees. Um, and it's all this out of copyright text, so you know, uh, there's a couple levels to where I saw it operating as a kind of conceptual work and also 
you know, as a joke of sorts. And I had just done this anthology of, you know, experimental writing that has joke structuring, uh, which, you know, this book called Why Poetry Sucks. Um, Anyway, uh, Amazon was like, nope, having none of it. I understand it. They actually said to me, we understand exactly what you're trying to do. And we understand, like, that for the artistic purposes of what you're doing, it has to have, you know, you have to be able to do this and this and this but we're still not going to allow you to do it because, you know, of quality concerns. Basically, like, they, they were concerned that people would accidentally be upset and frustrated if they, you know, ordered an e-book on Amazon and received a print book because they actually had ordered a print book, not knowing it. So uh, SM Biko, Samantha, just said, like, look, why don't you just change the name of this book? Um, then you got these, you know, two versions, and the title of this book works better as in in as a print object anyway. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It does work better as a print object uh, to, for it to say this book, and it's kind of more interesting if you have these two editions that have basically are the same book with one uh, a title difference, and then inside the interior text you just take ebook and change it into book. So that's why I went and I changed, you know, ebook to book throughout. Um, you know where it made where the book was referring to itself at least, or books were referring to themselves. Uh, but otherwise, you know, so it's like this weird, you know, uh, and that of course somehow satisfied Amazon. Hilariously, didn't care at all about the fact that I haven't written one word in the book. But I guess you know, technically, it's not a copyright violation. Anything I'm doing, even though. Uh, and you could argue, I suppose, that it is now copyrighted to me, although I released it under a Creative Commons license, like I, like I do all my poetry books. So um, that's my sort of long roundabout <laughs> explanation as to what this thing is. You know, so if you got this book, if I mailed one to you, because um, I mailed a few out to people, I've only got a very limited amount of them that I you know, produced. Um, so you can order them on Amazon, like I say, but I would encourage you not to order them on Amazon. I set the price quite high on Amazon um, to discourage people from ordering from Amazon. Um, but, uh, so if you order them directly from me, it's a lower price. I'll sign it. And then I'll additionally, uh, so I think on Amazon it's something like 26 bucks plus shipping. It's ridiculously high. Uh, for like a book that's, you know, under 100 pages and is one of the most bizarre things you'll ever see. Um, but, you know, it has a really beautifully designed cover by S.M. Biko and so on. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting book in other respects. Um, but if you order directly from me, if you go to jonathanball.com slash this book, so jonathanball.com slash this book, uh, 20 bucks, I'll sh- and I think a small shipping fee, depending on where you're at, 20 bucks, I'll ship you the book in print. I'll send you an email that gives you links to download the ebook version. And I'll send you out a copy of The Politics of Knives, which has, um, you know, a bunch of other uh, kind of more traditional but also kind of unusual texts, uh, one of which also began its uh, origins in the ebook project. But otherwise, The Politics of Knives, you know, it's also some poems about you know, all manner of things. It was put up by Coaches Books in 2012. It has, you know, a series of prose poems about... Um, you know, the movie Psycho by Hitchcock and uh, it's got all sorts of really unusual uh, it's got a great 
little poem about uh, the castle by Kafka where Kay, to get into the castle, transforms into a camera. It's kind of weird, surreal, um, novel-esque, experimental short fiction slash poems. Uh, So if you're hearing this podcast, you know, those, those are the things I will offer you. Otherwise, I'm not really promoting or publicizing this book. It's just this weird little secret that only, you know, a few of us uh, know about. So, um, Risha, I hope that answered all your questions. I think I addressed them all. Oh, you had one last question, which was my prior reading. Did having read uh, any of these original source texts um, alter or affect how I was reorganizing the text? So the short answer is no. Uh, I made a I made an effort to only uh, use books I hadn't read. Uh, so there's an exception, uh, uh, which is 1984. So 1984 by George Orwell. Uh, of course, I have read that book. The other books, either, but I hadn't. I didn't remember it very well because I had read it so long ago. Um, but I made a few, t- you know, decisions in there. Like I took the um, material from the novel's end or near the end of the novel and I put it at the end of my section. So I made a few kind of ordering decisions in 1984 because I'd read the original text. But the other ones, either I had never read them or I had completely forgotten them. Uh, And so I tried specifically to cut out, with that one exception, I cut out ones that I knew well and I kept in ones I didn't know well or didn't know too much about. Um, uh, And I tried to... I did that decision because I wanted to make sure that I was really focusing on the text in front of me rather than kind of, again, remembering the text that existed. But if you do know those original source texts well, I think they'll be like this... um, It'll have a bit more of an impact because you'll be bringing more to the table as a reader, in a manner of speaking. So you're kind of... Again, if you think of the novel as a Rorschach mirror uh, sort of combination you'll be reflecting back to yourself more than you might otherwise. So, um, hope you enjoyed that, you know, kind of path of a project. Um, go to jonathanball.com slash this book to get a little bit more information and check it out. Uh, maybe pick up a copy if you're interested in weird, you know, rare uh, low-run books. I've only got 50 of them in print uh, currently. I may not do more than 50 in ever. Um, so it's a pretty small, relatively, you know, 20 bucks for two books plus an ebook. Not too bad. Politics and Knives, I think, is by itself 18 bucks. So you're getting a steal of deal if you do decide to pick it up. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, I just kind of made this book for the few people who I think would, you know, kind of really caught into it. And I hope you like it if you do get a chance to check it out. Uh, but even if you don't ever want to check it out, I think, like, just kind of looking at the path of a project is sort of an interesting uh, thing sometimes. So there's a project that really has had, a, like, a lengthy multi-year path. It's gone through you know, very different set of origins. And I made a lot of decisions in the course of it, which, you know... Uh, were they the best decisions? I guess you'd have to judge that yourselves. Uh, but, you know, there's a logic to decisions. I think that the thing I always try to emphasize when I teach creative writing or uh, even when I'm just kind of thinking about my own practice or talking to people about their practices is I think it helps to kind of walk a weird line between doing things on instinct 
and kind of wanting a visceral uh, tension or reaction uh, from a reader and kind of establishing tensions in a text. Um, and then on the other hand, having like a kind of analytical, you know, thoughtful approach to the editing process or to how you're moving about things. And I think on even it's just a simpler level, uh, I like how the text turned out and that's why I, you know, decided to publish it, you know, where I published it. And again, I only published 35 of 76 of these things. Um, so I didn't publish, you know, everything I did by any means, but I learned a lot, uh, taking a text that kind of wasn't my own and treating it like it was my own, but with certain rules. You know, I could only do certain things. Uh, and so my editing process was very restricted. Uh, and as a result, I really learned a lot about doing those sorts of things, like putting this beside this and juxtapositions and deletions and how to focus uh, and orient a reader towards certain sentences and away from other things. And uh, control the flow a bit more than, say, the meaning uh, of the text. Uh, but the flow of the reading experience uh, was something I was kind of more focusing on because, you know, there was no real meaning uh, that I was trying to convey or I didn't remember the original context of the material or, or whatever. So, um, always worth trying an experiment. You know, you can always publish it if you like it and you don't have to. Like I say, when all said and done, I published very little of the work I did uh, with these spam texts. But I did publish some. I got some work I'm really proud of out of it. I got some interesting kind of oddities, uh, you know, for my, let's call them hardcore fans or whatever to, you know, enjoy. Uh, and at the same time, maybe most importantly, like, it was a really fun and enjoyable process. I learned a lot. Helped me get my ego out of the way a bit in terms of you know, I, I literally had to recognize that these machines were unconsciously doing a better job than me. Uh, and maybe the reason was that they're, they weren't trying to say something, but they were instead setting up a situation where the reader could say something or the, to themselves, um, kind of using the work as a mirror or a feedback loop. So, um, hope you enjoy this book as otherwise provided to you as is. Um, keep writing the wrong way. <laughs>